Hello and welcome to Changing Gears, where we explore research perspectives that go against the green. I'm Sarah. And I'm McBad. On this episode, we are looking down, way down, below ground to be exact. We are stepping into the world of mycorrhizal fungi. Hard to say, but really interesting to learn about. During a TED Talk, mycologist Paul Stamets dubbed mycorrhizal networks as the Earth's natural internet. Wait... Paul Stamets, the character from the new Star Trek series? <laughs> um, n- no. Although, he was the real-world inspiration for this character. A- anyways, a mycorrhizal network is a complex, below-ground system that allows for fungi and plants to communicate with one another. Most importantly, mycorrhizal fungi play an essential role in the success of our forests. But how essential is this role? Can fungi be the missing puzzle piece in solving some of our future forestry problems? In order to find out, we had to go to an expert, and that expert was Dr. Justine Karst, a restoration ecologist who specializes in below-ground ecology at the University of Alberta. All right, we've said it three times, so let's just go ahead and ask, what exactly are mycorrhizal fungi? Definition I've given probably a million times. Sorry. So no, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. I don't, I don't mind every time. It's good. Uh, so mycorrhizas are the association between uh, plants, plant roots, and mycorrhizal fungi. And so the mycorrhiza is the name that we give actually to the association. Mm-hmm. And you can talk about mycorrhizal fungi. So they're the fungi that are interacting with the host or mycorrhizal host, which is the plant. And I mostly do my research on ectomycorrhizal fungi, which is which is a type. It's a group of those mycorrhiza, and they form with mostly trees, so mostly conifers. Um, so mo- most of the trees in the boreal forest, if you look at the roots of those trees, they're going to be colonized by ectomycorrhizal fungi. We've mostly focused on mycorrhizal fungi, kind of not solely, but there's been a lot of important work, and a lot, a majority of the work has looked at their role in nutrient uptake. So they acquire nutrients in the soil that would be otherwise unavailable to their host and then bring those nutrients to the host and the host photosynthesizes, obviously, so tree, plant, and it allocates some of that sugar to supporting these mycorrhizal fungi. So mycorrhizal fungi are different than, say, decomposing fungi because they've lost the genetic toolkit to degrade organic matter. So they can't get carbon from dead stuff anymore they get carbon from a living host. And so they've, they've changed their, their function. So the host benefits and then it gets these nutrients. The mycorrhizal fungi benefits because it gets the sugar. And that's really what we focused on for a long time. Okay, so basically mycorrhizal relationships are what we all want. There's a little give and a little take. The fungi transfer minerals and protect plants. In return, plant hosts provide sugars to the fungi. Dr. Karst mentioned that their symbiotic relationship has been well-studied and documented. So we wanted to know how she would like to contribute to future discourse. My sort of pet topics that actually, you know, I would like to do more research on but just don't have enough time is like, I like to think about biogeography patterns of mycorrhizas, sort of really big scale things going on and how to connect these little tiny microbes with ecosystem processes and or do they connect and, and thinking about how these small things scale up to affect these processes that usually we would think about, you know, at a forest scale or a stand or landscape scale. And, and then actually we find that mycorrhizal fungi still play a role in that. Hmm. Let's take a step back and think about that for a second potentially an entire forest geographic range being regulated by tiny fungi. When I think of why the world's forests are where they are, the first thing I think of is, well, it's because of climate, right? 
Yeah, trees need a certain degree of precipitation or temperature, and that's simply why they grow where they grow. What role could fungi play in determining suitable forest habitat? So this research is a paper that has just been accepted, and, and yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. And so, so yes, as you mentioned, when we think about trees especially, and we think about their distribution and their ranges, we, we often go to climate first. And that totally makes sense. I would not say that my research uh, trumps that or replaces any of that research. Like, yes, that, that makes sense. And um, so this paper I've been working on, um, it looks at how the size, the range size of a tree species might be influenced by its response to ectomycorrhizal fungi. And this paper, so this research shows that, so this is actually from uh, this database that we've been putting together for the past decade, and we, we published the database a few years ago, and we still add to it, and it's just, just this awesome source of, of experiments that have tested their response, usually of tree seedlings, to inoculation by mycorrhizal fungi. And so we kind of subsetted that whole database to focus on experiments that have inoculated seedlings with ectomycorrhizal fungi. And then we can calculate an effect size to see that. So if they're inoculated, do they grow more than the controlled and inoculated or do they do worse or do they do the same? Mm -hmm. And so we have this huge database cataloging all these experiments that have done that kind of that sort of treatment. And what we found, so we put that database together with one that we created that we digitized our range maps for a whole bunch of species that we had in this database. So we could, you know, calculate a range area for, I think it was 62 tree species. And then we looked at how they responded to ectomycorrhizal inoculation. And what we found is that the tree species with the largest area, they show the average response to inoculation, kind of a conservative response, you could say. And tree species with really small range areas, they showed really extreme responses to mycorrhizal inoculation, and extreme in both ways, like either really, really positive or really, really negative. And, and so I thought that was pretty interesting. In this research, we didn't rank, say, so what is the role of climate in affecting range area? What's the role of mycorrhizas? We haven't done that. But I think her paper is a nice addition to the conversation of it might not just be all about climate. You know, there's these biotic interactions to maybe consider in where the tree is found, its range area, that kind of thing. And I think it makes sense because when you think about mycorrhizas in particular, they have been in partnerships with these trees for over 100 million years. Mm -hmm. And so it's a very ancient partnership. So in a way, I don't think it's that surprising that, you know, where a tree is found could be somewhat linked to how it responds to mycorrhizal fungi. Okay, so not saying that we've been doing everything wrong, but there is definitely more to the story than we first thought. When the range of a tree is being determined, usually to find future suitable habitat, we use climate models. So do these predictive climate models need to start considering fungi? I wouldn't take away the models, but I might add to the models. Yeah. You know, and there's always that argument, you know, just making these models more and more complicated. Um, but I, I think that there might be an argument that the, the models could be expanded a little bit to include some of these biotic interactions. Mm -hmm. Like I said, there is much evidence that supports that trees, their geographic ranges are um, predicted well by climate variables. And I would not argue against that. Mm -hmm. But what I think my research shows though, that there is probably room to expand those models 
and be thinking about biotic interactions. Okay, I think that's fair enough. Climate is still very much a key player in determining forest range, but I'm beginning to see how important fungi can be. But what about fungi and climate change? Yeah, I mean, we have tons of evidence about how plants react to increased atmospheric carbon dioxide and how changes in precipitation or temperature can inhibit or promote the growth of a tree. But what I'd like to know is, what's going to happen below ground? How will these fungi react to future climate change? It's kind of hard to make generalizations because nothing in ecology is absolute, right? Mm -hmm. Like it really depends on the system you're looking at. Um, but so mycorrhizal fungi, they, they need carbon to, for their own metabolism. So if you have a host that's bringing in, in more carbon, then it could presumably support more mycorrhizal fungi. And so kind of indirect evidence of this is, um, for example, with our mountain pine beetle research, when the trees are killed by mountain pine beetle, and a bunch of them are killed by mountain pine beetle, um, you can imagine that that flow of carbon from the trees through the roots that usually would be leaking from the roots and then support these mycorrhizal fungi. When all these trees are killed, we see a substantial reduction in ectomycorrhizal in the mushrooms that they produce. So if they're not getting that carbon, you, you can lose a lot of the ectomycorrhizal fungi. So sort of using the reverse logic in that if you're feeding them more carbon, then you might expect them to increase um, in abundance or, you know, in soils. Mm -hmm. so, there, so there's that because they, their metabolism is mediated by the host. There's that, there's that role in just the flow of carbon. If it's increased, that could have an effect on the below ground community. But there's also other indirect changes that if we start to lose or gain tree species on the landscape because of a change in climate, that could also affect the community composition of these below ground mycorrhizal fungi. So sort of that indirect effect. But the other thing that we're learning though is like, so that's sort of a, you know, top down look. But the other thing that we're learning is that mycorrhizal fungi can also affect the response that the plants have to say an increase in carbon dioxide. So for example, there's a few studies that came out in the past few years. So what we know before is that when we increase the CO2 concentration in the atmosphere, like say, for example, when you look across the face experiments, that trees increase in growth for a little while, right? They're responding to that increase in CO2, but then often it slows ground or stops. And that's because they can only grow so much before then they become nutrient limited in the soil. And so, but what we have, not me, but what other groups have found is that that response, that tree response to that CO2 fertilization, it also depends on what kind of mycorrhizas they host. So for example, when the tree is ectomycorrhiza, ectomycorrhiza fungi are really good at getting, tapping into organic forms of nitrogen, breaking those down, and then giving their plant host nitrogen. And so under those CO2 fertilization experiments, they found that when trees are ectomycorrhizal, they actually show more of a growth response to CO2 than, say, in a buscular mycorrhizal tree. And this is because when you're ectomycorrhizal, you might be getting more CO2, you're growing more, but because you can also tap into that nitrogen source in the soil, the organic nitrogen, you can keep growing. Versus in our buscular mycorrhizal tree, 
it doesn't have that same capacity to tap into, say, organic forms of nitrogen. So it grows, it responds to the, the CO2 fertilization, but only so much. And it can't tap into that same nutrient pool. So you don't see the same growth increases in arbuscular mycorrhizal trees as you do with ectomycorrhizal trees. So I think it's a really nice example of how this below ground fits into our understanding of, say, how trees respond to um, increased CO2 levels. Okay, let's recapture some of that. I'm going to bring us back to the Earth's natural internet for a second. When carbon dioxide is increased, fungi can respond to it and increase in abundance. The internet is high speed and the network connection is strong until the tree host reaches its maximum carbon dioxide uptake. When this happens, it's because the soil becomes nutrient limited. In other words, you used up your high-speed internet allotment for the month and your provider has bumped you down to a much slower rate. However, if a tree host can no longer survive because of climate-induced stress, then the network loses connectivity as a result of lack of hosts. Is this making sense? Yeah, I think I'm following. Go on. Okay. And then there's the possibility of unlimited high-speed internet and a guaranteed strong network. Ectomycorrhizal fungi can help mobilize nitrogen and reduce nutrient depletion, which would essentially let trees continue to absorb and use the extra carbon dioxide that's in the atmosphere. The internet is just the gift that keeps on giving. I know, right? How am I just learning about this now? The only other thing that I'm wondering is how Dr. Karst even ended up in this field. Below-ground ecology does not get the same amount of attention as above-ground. People tend to care more about charismatic species, which in turn means that people tend to care about habitats that are home to these species. We've got to save the pandas. And yeah, I agree, the research is completely imbalanced. There is still so much more to learn about below-ground ecology. But you're right, I am interested to hear how Dr. Karst ended up on this path. Kind of when my master's was sort of winding down, I was reading about papers a little bit to sort of about mycorrhizal ecology and was kind of getting interested in that, which had nothing to do with my master's project. And so at the time, my supervisor kept telling me to focus on the ferns, but I was, I was getting kind of intrigued by these mycorrhizas. And then it was um, around that time period that this paper came out by Suzanne Samard, who's a great friend and collaborator of mine. And she and her group put out this paper about how trees might be connected below ground through mycorrhizal networks and how carbon might be shuttled around through these mycorrhizal networks. That really changes our views of um, forests as being solely driven by competition to uh, a view of, you know, maybe there is some facilitation, maybe there's a little bit more cooperation and this occurs below ground. And I thought that was just the coolest paper ever. Dr. Suzanne Simard, the author of the paper that caught Dr. Carr's attention, is a very well-known forest ecologist at the University of British Columbia. She gave a fascinating TED talk titled, How Trees Talk to Each Other. I suggest everyone take a moment and check it out. I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, I remember coming across a YouTube video by her a few years ago. I honestly had no idea just how connected trees are to one another. I mean, it's such an abstract thought for me, but it somehow still makes total sense. But anyways, do you want to know what my favorite part of talking to Dr. Karst was? Do tell. <laughs> Learning about her serendipitous moment. It is amazing how full circle her career is. 
I can't believe that she began as an undergrad at the U of A and now teaches the same classes that she took. I have an undergraduate from ENCS, from, from the program, and I was one of the first cohorts to come out of the program. And that was in 1998. ENCS stands for Environmental and Conservation Sciences, a bachelor's degree offered at the University of Alberta. So yes, Dr. Kars alma mater is the University of Alberta. And then from there, actually, I was working with Simon Landhauser and Vic Liefers in their lab as a research tech, summer assistant sort of thing. And that's when I kind of got interested in research. And I never had even considered doing research because at the time, um, I was a mom with a baby. And that career choice just did not even register for me. I did not think it was a possibility given my situation. And But I really, really loved doing research. I really liked working in their lab. I liked being out in the forest. And I really, really liked all the thinking part of that job. And so, um, and at the time, I had not even heard of Enzerich or anything like that. And then I had some people in the program encourage me to apply for Enzerich to do um, a master's. And so I did that. And then I was successful. And so that was sort of the first step of like, okay, maybe maybe this is a possible career trajectory for me. And just like that, she was off. Dr. Kars completed her master's in biology at McGill University. She then did a PhD at the University of British Columbia, followed by a postdoc at the University of Mississippi. However, it was a Killam Fellowship that brought Dr. Kars back to where it all started, the U of A. And then I came up to U of A. I won a Killam Fellowship to come back to U of A. And then I postdoced at U of A for a few years and then became a research associate. And then this position in restoration ecology came up and I applied for that and then I got it. That was a little serendipitous, I think. Starting out as a confused undergrad. Something we can all relate to. Mm-hmm. And then returning to your alma mater as a full-time professor. Full circle indeed. Dr. Karst's next project will focus on aspen trees. She mentioned to us that aspen trees host both types of mycorrhizal fungi and is interested to explore the potential dominance of one type of fungi as a function of latitude. We thank Dr. Justine Karst for her time and valuable contribution to this episode, and thank you for listening.